welcome to Sounds Heal Podcast. I am your host, Natalie Brown, and thanks so much for joining me as we continue to explore the topics of sound therapy, sound healing, using sound for health and wellness, and related fields. I came across Alex Braidwood, our guest today, after having my interests sparked about acoustic ecology, interacting with nature sounds, soundscapes, and other related topics. And that sparked interest came from a course I was taking, Dig Deeper, with Mitch Neuer, Mike Tamburo, and Thomas Orr Anderson. You'll see I have an interview with them, a podcast, back in May about that course. The course brought to light so many things that I did want to dig deeper into, and acoustic ecology was definitely one of them. And you'll hear me talk to Alex Braidwood about how I came across him and how I ended up taking his acoustic ecology course through the University of Iowa this summer. I truly enjoyed the acoustic ecology course with Alex, the homework that we did, the readings, the lectures for the class. Uh, the field work, as well as some really interesting things that it sparked for me as far as merging environmental awareness, sound therapy, and musical experimentation. So I thought it'd be great to have him on today as our guest and talk about his fascination with sound, talk about acoustic ecology, deep listening, and also his sound art projects really maintaining a a practice centered around play and experimentation when it comes to sound. Alex Braidwood is a sound artist, designer, and educator. And the goal of his work is to connect people to their surroundings, to increase understanding of the importance of protecting the soundscape, as sound indicates the wellness of an environment. This episode is sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. The Ohm Shop offers a vast array of sound healing and vibrational medicine tools. They offer the country's largest showroom of quartz crystal singing bowls, sound healing instruments, and vibrational medicine tools. It's a great place to get guidance and direction. And I know many people that have bought all their crystal bowls from the Ohm Shop just because they are available to consult you with you directly and offer you advice as you're trying to select your instruments. So call them today or visit them at theohmshop.com. Thanks so much to the Ohm Shop and Spa for their sponsorship. Please enjoy this podcast episode with Alex Braidwood. Well, this is really cool because, you know, the reason I found you and took the classes and kind of with the work that I do is through sound therapy. I was, a couple of my teachers, we were talking about deep listening and it got into soundscapes and they mentioned the Vancouver Soundscape Project and My brother works at Simon Fraser University, where, of course, that all started, and I was just really curious about it, so it started as a rabbit hole for me, just kind of looking into acoustic ecology and soundscapes, and then um, I was like, huh, I wonder if anybody's doing that in Iowa locally. I haven't really heard anybody doing sound walks or soundscapes, and so I found your name and just started 
uh, following what you were doing, um, gosh, just probably a month before you announced the virtual class. So it was just really oh, interesting cool. how that all sparked. And uh, I had been thinking that somehow I was going to merge my music with kind of environmental awareness. So yeah, it's been really cool uh, how this has developed. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to talk with you and actually kind of bring this kind of side of sound exploration into the the podcast audience. So why don't we start with how your fascination with sound started, whether it was a young age or <clears throat> maybe it developed later. Let's just, why don't you kind of introduce your background a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, sound has been, sound and music was sort of a part of my life all growing up. Some of my earliest memories are learning how to put my own audio record, uh, like a book on record on the record player. Um, you know, so this was in like the very early 80s. Um, I remember my father teaching me like how to safely put the record on. And it was like a Scooby-Doo record, um, you know, where they were like reading the book. And he had like a headphone extension so that I could run the headphones all the way down the hallway to my bedroom. Uh, even though the record was like out on the family stereo and I would just lay there and like, listen to the sound, you know, listen to the, um, to these books. And then, uh, very early, my, my parents were, were big supporters of music and art and creativity. And, and, and my father is a, um, is a very skilled, uh, amateur acoustic guitar player. And so he put a guitar in both my and my sister's hands really early uh, and took some lessons and, and that didn't, didn't really stick, but I enjoyed doing it. Um, and then it came back around in high school when I got very into playing uh, bass guitar and I played in bands, I played in jazz band, I played for community theater. Um, and that just kind of like grew and grew with, you know, playing with my buddies on hay trailers out in fields and stuff. Um, and then when I went to college, I followed my sort of artistic passions and went into graphic design, where I very quickly learned that as a graphic designer, you could also work in the realm of media. And so I just went all in on interactive media, time-based media, motion graphics, this kind of work, because I could do the visual stuff and the sound stuff and make music and work with like as a director and things like this. So because it brought all these things together, um, it just it just completely drew me in. And at that same time, was kind of moving away from the physical instruments and getting more into like turntables and synthesizers and samplers and digital music. And, and that then played a huge role in my professional career, both the work I was doing as a student, but then the work that I did for the next decade plus as an interaction motion graphics designer, where um, along with doing like experimental sound art and collaboration with a couple other like artists and musicians, I was also integrating the like active recording of stuff in the field into the professional work that I was doing. So I was always looking for like interactive sound, like sounds for interaction, like button clicks and rollover sounds, things you would hear on like, well, in the early days it was CD-ROMs, but then it turned into websites and continued to be like motion graphics and things for tablets and, you know, um, experiences at trade shows and things like that, like auto shows. And so, um, so sound was always there as an interest. I was also really interested in how I could use programming as a way to like compose and manipulate sound. So starting back uh, in some of the earliest days after undergraduate, uh, after my undergraduate schooling, I played around a lot in Max MSP um, and Jitter and was doing some like live performance kind of things with that. And then when it came time to go to grad school, 
uh, I was just continuing to be really interested in both sound and typography and wanted to kind of drill into that. And through that, I got interested in noise pollution um, and was very curious about like the role that noise pollution played in our ability to engage with the urban environment and how we were using mobile devices and headphones to sort of mediate that or, or, or even me as an artist using that as a space to interrogate for how we related to really populated spaces. And so then that came kind of full circle all the way back around to the fact that I grew up camping. I'm an Eagle Scout. I grew up outdoors, backpacking, um, lots of hiking, lots of outdoor cooking, wilderness first aid, like the whole thing. And so being in Southern California, looking into noise pollution and realizing that a huge part of that, not only as a designer, was the appreciation of nature sound. I realized pretty quickly that I could take this uh, recording equipment and like go out hiking and backpacking with it. And it sort of refacilitated uh, my connection with nature that I had sort of lost as I had gone all in on the urban environment for the past decade or so, basically since going to college. And so that sort of brought it all back around to this real fascination with uh, appreciation of, of listening, appreciation of soundscapes, protecting of soundscapes and, and, and sort of realizing um, a little bit more slowly that this is actually like a field that people are invested in. And that was when I learned about some of the other folks who were really had been kind of defining that field for the past 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we can circle back and talk about some of your sound art projects, but maybe as kind of a a prep or intro about acoustic ecology, I think it's important to talk about deep listening. In fact, you know, that that class that I, I took with you, what does it have to do with acoustic ecology? Maybe you can define both deep listening and acoustic ecology for us. Sure. Well, you know, I think deep listening, um, you know, really focuses on hearing and really focuses on a strong connection to your environment. And the way that I um, sort of came upon it was through the work of Pauline Oliveris and, and you know, the work that she do- has done or, yeah, has done um, to really kind of define that as a practice from a music and composition standpoint. And so this idea of deep listening, of really practicing a focused engagement on a connection to your present soundscape has provided a lot of value. And so around the same time that I was learning about that, I was also learning about mindfulness. I was also kind of like trying to work on some things in my own personal life. And it really all just sort of uh, connected in that way where for me, deep listening really was about this idea that you can get better at listening, which I found fascinating when I first started to come upon this. And like, I think musicians maybe know this or, or have experienced this in a much, you know, uh, sort of a much more direct way with different types of training that they do. Um, but it wasn't until I had really sort of dug in on that kind of work and, and, and been exposed to different types of ear cleaning exercises and, and read about it from the academic standpoint, this idea that you can actively engage with listening and you can in fact get better at it. And so having that as a way to engage and remain present was sort of the most important aspect of that, that I, that I think is really valuable. So to me, deep listening is really about that concerted effort in practicing listening and practicing being connected to your present environment. And it's like anything else. It's relatively difficult at first, or maybe it even seems like too simple at first. And until you really get into it, then it's like, 
oh, this is the kind of thing that it is like, okay, sure. Like lifting a little jug of water once or twice, that's fine. But I can't wake up the next day and be like, oh, I've lifted that jug of water. Now I'm an Olympic lifter. Like, no, that's not how it works. You start out with something that's like a little bit of practice and you sort of grow it and, and maintain it and, and engage with it over time. And then you start to notice these shifts, not only in like your own perception, but in this case, in your own like physical uh, and mental uh, ability. And so to move on to then like acoustic ecology, um, you know, it's a, it's a term that's new enough that it has, um, you know, sort of uh, different folks are investigating it in, in investigating it in a variety of different ways. And to me, uh, at a very high level, acoustic ecology is about the observation and preservation of a soundscape. Um, I think the most important aspect of that is how it intersects with nature sound. I think the idea of preserving um, natural soundscapes is something that is really valuable, both for the different like uh, wildlife that depend on the soundscape in order to, you know, sort of properly function, in order to reproduce, in order to have their own sort of quality existence, but also us as humans, in order to be able to go out and appreciate nature and to engage with nature and to, to be able to set the right kind of expectations for what it is when we go out into into the natural world, and so a lot to me, a lot of the important work of acoustic ecology is not only identifying what's there, but also starting to investigate like what does it signify, what kind of meaning does it bring, and then as designers, artists, cultural producers, and definers of space, it's important to ask questions about like what's necessary, what kind of information is carried within that, not just because of a specific type of experience that you're trying to create, but also all the way down into um, things that begin to impact our health and our wellness. Um, and so that's that's a huge part of the the work that I think is really valuable and, and important to be doing. Mm. So the sound really indicates the wellness of an environment and it communicates. So like, can you give us some examples? Uh, maybe I know you've been an artist in residence and of course done field work all over. Can you give us some examples of, of what you found in, in various locations that maybe would help us understand what sound can indicate? Sure. Yeah. So one of the things um, that I really like to chase in my work is, uh, is, a, is a recording at a time of day, um, or recording at dawn. And at this time of day, the, the acoustic signature of that in a wilderness environment is referred to as the dawn chorus. So it's this time from before sunrise until uh, a little bit after the sun is up where everything is kind of uh, coming to life. The, the wildlife is vocalizing and, and you can sort of hear everything um, moving into its place within the, within the soundscape. And there's some pretty good observations out there. A lot of the work done by um, people like Bernie Krauss have identified ways in which the acoustic signatures of different species, but then also, um, you know, sort of different, um, um, you know, just like different wildlife altogether operate in different spaces. And so when a, a group of different birds are vocalizing, you will hear them like taking turns you will hear them vocalizing within the signatures of other of, of other species and things like this and um, you can observe particular soundscapes that are much more clean um, and that tends to be an indicator that there has not been a great deal of human noise 
um, that has like basically messed up that soundscape. And so the cleaner uh, a dawn chorus, that can signify um, a much more sort of pristine or a much more preserved soundscape. And then that draws relationships between the habitat, the resources, the other things that are going on in that space. So then if you move to the other side of that, if you get somewhere where there's a lot of human noise or the habitat has been very disrupted or um, you know things have really been put out of place, it's much more chaotic. There's a much more like species are stepping on each other when they're vocalizing. Uh, sometimes if there's a lot of light pollution, for example, you will hear species vocalizing all through the night because they've lost track of what time it is. If there's even like big seasonal, there's big like climate related shifts too um, that you can start to observe over multiple years. Um, but in a lot of ways, those, those sort of like smaller indicators really do become uh, an identifiable way to assess how much of an impact um, has you know sort of human noise or or sort of these unwanted sounds had on on these different natural environments and so one of the um very specific recordings that i'd like to talk about uh, in my work is a dawn chorus that i recorded when i was an artist and resident uh, in an australian national park it was through an organization called the bogong center for sound culture and um, it's, it operates out of bogong village which is in victoria australia and I was up, you know, this residency was up in the mountains. I was in a relatively like pristine area um, that through a whole sort of like multiple decades long sequence of um, government decisions to control this area because of the natural resources and, and basically their desire to dam the river and create a hydroelectric scheme. In the way that property management works with the government of Australia, a whole bunch of this land had just never been developed. And so even though it was protected to, you know, sort of disrupt the flow of water, because the government owned it, it was also protected from a whole bunch of other types of development. So what I ended up recording up there were some of the most pristine soundscapes that I've had a chance to record. And it's specifically because of this, like, far, you know, I'm far away from any human built infrastructure, I'm far away from roads, uh, I'm in an area where there aren't that there, there aren't that many flights going by overhead because of how the air traffic is managed around the edge of the country. This was or in the edge of the continent. This was much further into the center. So there was like a whole bunch of factors at play that really created this wonderful space. Um, and so that that recording is one that I really celebrate and, and like to share. Mm -hmm. um, it's one that's available online, and um, I can sort of you can find it through my through my website. And at one point, I actually released it uh, along with a, an experimental composition based on the same uh, set of recordings. Uh, I released it as an album on a pop record label here in Iowa, which was pretty fun. So so that's on like the pristine end. And then you go to the other side where um, if I'm in like a prairie that is surrounded by farmland, you can really hear the disruption of um, how much, you know, um, activity is going on around, especially different times of year when there's a lot more sort of like uh, machinery and things like that potentially running right near where, um, you know, like where the birds are setting up habitats and things like that. Mm -hmm. So in, in a way, you know, this work is both preserving kind of like a sound history of a location, but have you seen any changes or regulations implemented based on uh, protecting the soundscape? Yeah, there have been some. The National Parks have, uh, have been doing a really good job over the last, um, oh, maybe 10 or 15 years, maybe even 20 now, to like take the soundscape much more seriously. Um, 
uh, you know, I was, I was noticing a couple, maybe four or five years ago, uh, they were starting to do, they were starting to have job postings for um, people who were interested in studying uh, environmental sounds across multiple parks. So they wanted people with um, biology degrees who were able to do soundscape assessment. And I've seen a lot more science. Um, I've seen a lot more scientific investment in utilizing the soundscape for things, even just like, you know, uh, species diversity counts and things like that. Um, so looking at like the things that the national parks are doing to apply value to the soundscape in the same way that they apply value to the landscape has been pretty exciting. I know several years ago, um, there was a big shift in how helicopters were allowed to engage in Grand Canyon National Park, which was a really like positive thing to see uh, because that, you know, the, the helicopters that would come from Las, the helicopter tours that would come from Las Vegas at, at certain points were just almost constant and, and it disrupted, I mean, that was bad enough that it disrupted the enjoyment of the park for, for everyone. Um, not, not even just the, you know, sort of the natural soundscape and, and the value that it would provide to nature itself. Um, but then having some type of limitation put in place was a positive step uh, that was indicating, um, you know, the, the value of, of a quality soundscape on, on this environment. There's a big study that was done um, out of Yellowstone National Park a few years ago, doing a similar level of assessment to find out like what, you know, certain areas of the park and um, what kind of impact they had. Uh, and then they also did a big winter study, which was part of them limiting winter activity, which was all on like snow machines. Um, and the amount of noise put out by mm -hmm. snow machines is pretty excessive. Yeah. And so with that getting more and more and more popular, um, the, the preservation of the winter soundscape was, uh, was, was a factor in limiting the, the access that they were granting to snow machine tours and things like that. Mm -hmm. And didn't you do a project, this might have been a few years ago, about water quality? You know, we've talked quite a bit about birds and and uh, biophony, but didn't you do a water quality project too? What was that based on? I did, yeah. So I've done a few different projects related to uh, water quality here in Iowa um, because, you know, quality of water is, a, is an issue and it is a discussion all over the world. And, and it's no different here where um, there's sort of a big impact uh, a big impact between the land, the agriculture, and, and the water that comes out of the state. And so I did a couple different projects. Um, one of the more recent ones was a project where I took water quality readings from a river. Well, the water quality readings existed, um, uh, and I utilized those to make a public interactive art piece with the city of West Des Moines um, and an arts organization called Bravo Greater Des Moines and a, uh, another collective called Group Creative. So um, my project was a interactive xylophone. You had these different length metal pipes that you, know, you clang on them and they make different notes based on how long the pipes are. But the length of those pipes was dictated by the uh, E. coli and chloride readings that came out of the water, which was just the river was maybe uh, maybe 50 meters away from where the project was installed and it was right along a bike path and so um, it was up for a whole summer and it was this um, you know interactive way to engage a public uh, with this idea of water quality as water is kind of like coming down and moving through the city um, and then another one that's ongoing that I started when I was an artist in residence at the Iowa Lakeside Lab um, is a project where I'm taking the buoy data um, so wait, uh, let me say that again better. There's a buoy in the lake right uh, next to where Iowa Lakeside Lab is. So Iowa Lakeside Lab is on West Okoboji Lake. 
they monitor a buoy that's in West Okoboji Lake and it has a whole array of sensors above and below the water. And so I built a system that grabs that data and converts it into music for both composition and for live performance. Um, and so that's something that I've been working on over the last couple of years. Um, and that one was interesting because when they first put the buoy out, it had a certain amount of sensors on it. And then a couple of years later, they added a whole bunch more sensors so that there was a whole array of sensors going all the way down to the bottom. So they're getting um, different like temperature and, and dissolved oxygen readings at intervals all the way to the bottom of the lake now. Uh, and so this past year, um, I turned that into a, I turned that array of sensors into a system where I can perform in nearly real time what's been going on in the lake. I say nearly real time because the um, sensor data goes up to the web every 10 minutes. Um, and so the performance is always like, what is the lake doing now? And then it steps backwards for the past few days. So whenever I do uh, a performance that that tends to be um, the sort of time frame is like, what has the lake been up to for the last couple of days? Well, I'm curious from a music compositional standpoint, if I was to listen to it, what would I be able to tell, you know, what the lake is doing? How would I know what the music is telling me? Well, there's part of what, what I think is fascinating about it as a system is that things within the data being monitored change at different rates. And so one of the first things that you observe is you're like, oh, some things change quite a bit over the view period and some things hardly change at all. So for example, like the temperature up near the surface, that may fluctuate even a little bit over the course of a day by a degree or two potentially. Whereas as it goes down, that temperature stays a little bit more uh, consistent. However, over the course of a season, like where that temperature is changing to is going to shift completely. Um, and then with like uh, dissolved oxygen or pH levels, like those move around, but they kind of move again and like more like a weekly type basis as opposed to like a monthly or even like a, then there's like again bigger shifts at the seasonal level but then there's other things like uh precipitation like if there's a rain event mm -hmm. that comes in as just like you know a, a almost like a solo there's just this moment where because there'll be days where there is no rain and then maybe there's a day where there's a lot of rain or a small rain event in a you know very small window of time um and then wind monitoring is another one that uh that is really interesting because the how gusty the wind can get or just how sort of non-existent it is at times. So the first thing that you observe really is like how much is changing and how much isn't or the, the rate of change. And then from there, um, it would be a little bit more of a learned system to be able to identify, you know, for example, like what what instrument is assigned to temperature, what instrument is assigned to dissolved oxygen saturation, things like that. Mm. That's really interesting. Is are examples of that on your website? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So yeah. So there's examples. Um, uh, the on the website it's called Buoy Music. Okay. So you can find um, if you go to listeninginstruments.com, you can find the Buoy Music project. There's also uh, on on listeninginstruments.com. There's a link to my Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. um, and last for for last year's data, um, I picked a week that I thought was particularly interesting, and I actually made it into like an album. Mm. where mm -hmm. uh, there's seven tracks and each track is a 24-hour day of data. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. And so, yeah, it's really interesting, you know, creating this sound and art form while also kind of focusing this appreciation or environmental awareness. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks. So most recently you were at the Isle Royale National Park up in Michigan. Isn't that right? 
Yes. Yep. Yeah. I was, I had a chance to be an artist in residence at, at Isle Royale last summer. Yep. And what were they having you listen, listen for? So it, um, I was up there to sort of capture whatever I could. Um, the way the the way that residency works is it's a it's a relatively intense like application process. Um, they get quite a few applicants from all over the world, and then they pick two or three artists each summer to come up um, for a couple of weeks, um, one at a time, because there's uh, there's just a very small artist cabin, so overlapping artists um, isn't really feasible. Um, but I had a chance to be up there for a little over two weeks and. You know, it's um, it's uh, it's, it's a sort of it's a really friendly uh, residency structure in that you kind of give an idea of what it is you're going to do, but they they know that a lot of the work happens through the process, and so um, you know, it's sort of like um, a structure where you're you're applying based on the work that you've done in the past with like a an eye towards what it is that you're wanting to do, and so my goal up there was to um, you know, record as many different things as I could that really did signify like the place. And I, I just was very curious about how many different types of environments there are there, whether you're by the shore, whether you're, you know, sort of on the North shore versus the South shore, whether you're in one of the inland lakes, whether you're um, in, you know, sort of different campgrounds all around. I know it's, it's, you know, it's funny because it's like not a populated island until you try to get away from people and then you realize that it's like quite populated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which also became a part of the adventure was just like meeting people and talking to people as I was like running into them on the trail, you know, I was carrying around a microphone and, and with like my big fuzzy windscreen and they kind of had, you know, in a real kind of fun way, they had my picture up at the visitor center because, uh, you know, because I was the artist in residence uh, during that window. And so people were running into me and um, had seen some of the promotion on Facebook and stuff. So it also just became a really fun way to kind of like share the message of listening and the message of appreciating the soundscape with people as I, as I went. So I, I ended up even kind of treating my movement around the island almost as like an ongoing workshop to engage anyone who was like willing to willing to listen or, or was even just a little bit interested. So I recorded a bunch of sound. I set up some of the uh, automatic acoustic loggers in a couple different places. Um, and so the, the time on the island was really much more about like observation and collection. And then coming back into the studio was more about like the analysis and the composition. So I, I um, I built kind of the first project out of that, um, which I called Listening Over the Edge. Um, and it's a project that was going to be displayed uh, up in Houghton, Michigan, um, through a, a gallery uh, that's part of the Michigan Tech University, which has a big research presence on Isle Royale. Um, but so that happened right when all the COVID stuff right. uh, got really bad. So that that show has been paused, but it should still be, uh, it will still be coming up at some point, maybe even later, you know, sort of later in 2020, later this year. Um, but that installation utilizes the composition of, of audio recordings that I made based on uh, wolf moose data that has been collected uh, since the mid 60s. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, anytime you if you know anything about Isle Royale, it's probably something to do with moose, uh, because that's really where that island kind of exists in pop culture is the, you know, it is overrun with moose and the wolf reintroduction has been um, sort of like, um, really quite well publicized. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you've heard anything about Isle Royale, it's probably related to like wolf and moose. Mm-hmm. And so 
meeting the people who are running that research program and being able to see some of it on the ground was was really incredibly valuable. And then, um, yeah, being able to get into some of the data that they've been collected and utilize that as a way to run a sonification-based installation where I'm composing different sounds that I had collected over the time there was a um, uh, was like my first sort of production uh, of work from that, mm -hmm. which is what I donated back to the park. Yeah. Can you describe sonification a little bit and and the audio that's created from sonification? What does that mean? Oh, sure. Yeah. So so the the sort of clinical definition of sonification uh, is the presentation of information through traditionally non-human or non-verbal sound. Um, so the way that I try to make it the most relatable when I'm describing what I do with like the buoy music or the water quality data installations or this wolf moose research data installation is um, think about like if you have a sensor that's telling you what temperature the water is, if the water is 57 degrees, then you hit the 57th key on a piano. And if the water goes up to 58 degrees, then you hit the 58th key on the piano. And so the program that, that I developed, I just, I wrote a bunch of code to grab that and convert it into uh, MIDI so that I can utilize that data to virtually control uh, synthesizers and sample playback. And I, and I, depending on what the project is, whether the end result is composition or live performance or installation, um, determines which sort of set of, of software I use to, to program those environments. Right. Right. And I think that, I think it was called listen right here that you did in Des Moines. That was really this interesting intersection of the urban environment. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think you called it sonic fiction experiment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Listen Right Here was a project that I did uh, when I was um, the Iowa artist with the Des Moines Arts Center. Um, and so at the beginning of the year, um, around May, I installed solar-powered sound recorders at five different locations around the city of Des Moines, and they ran for five weeks. Um, and then I went back and I collected up the results, and I just started pouring through them and, and was really looking for sounds that felt unique to the place where that that um, recorder was installed. And so I went through and I collected them all up and organized them and ended up utilizing them to develop a six channel installation for the Des Moines Art Center that ran for a little over three months where I took the sounds straight off the recorder and mastered some of them. But then I also took some and I manipulated some of them. I added some effects, I composed them, I layered them, I stretched them playing with like time uh, and, and the ways in which the sounds start to layer up. And then I loaded them into a, uh, a hardware-based system where in each channel, uh, at the any time it would hit the end of the sound, it would randomly select another sound from that location to play. And then the way the speakers were organized in this relatively dark room, when you walked in, if you stood in the center, it was if you were standing in the center of the city and all of those sounds were oriented in the same place around the city, but folded into one place. Um, and so, yeah, so the, this idea of like sonic fiction or, or even like I did another installation that I called based on a true story is this idea that like the sounds are all familiar. You, you sort of recognize them, but not exactly, not always exactly being able to like pinpoint what they are and where they come from. And it was sort of a different way of painting a portrait of these very different environments around the city, but also as a way to like tell the story of these different places so that you hear the difference between 
like the courtyard of the of the art market and performance space versus the uh, bus station that's also right near the train tracks versus you know an abandoned house on the edge of a neighborhood that was like culturally decimated when they put a freeway through it um, versus you know an area of town kind of more known for its nighttime activities nightlife so being able to like fold that all into one place and create a different type of engagement with the city. Um, and, and even that was kind of the end of a year's, uh, like a year long programming where um, not only did I like put the recorders up, but also did listening tours and led tours with a little tour booklet around to visit the locations, to talk about the locations, to talk about the, um, you know, sort of the sound related issues in the different locations. I did um, workshops with uh, children all the way from like young children where their guardians would come in. And that was like a half day workshop. I did a week long workshop with uh, high school students where we actually learned how to use sound recorders and make compositions and build interactive sculptures and things like this. Um, we did listening exercises, we did sound walks. So there was a whole, basically a whole year of programming that started with designing, developing, and putting up these sound recorders, and then culminated in this three and a half month long exhibition at the, at the art center. Um, and the reason why I kind of keep saying the time is because the way that the composition was developed, uh, it was never the same at any point when you walked in. So because each of these channels was operating independently, they were always creating a different type of composition. And I even had silence built in uh, to every channel. So when a sound ended, silence was one of the things that could come next. And, and there were a couple of times where I heard that it did go silent for a couple of minutes and then another sound comes in and another sound comes in and it sort of builds back up. But the idea being that anytime you visited it, you were getting a different experience. You know, there, there, was, no, there was no loop at all, um, which was a huge sort of, part of, of how the installation was was created mm -hmm. so really in a way to shift our awareness to to connect to our, our surroundings through sound yeah yeah, yeah. yeah you mentioned something i think you were talking about kind of the the pamphlet or, or guide and it reminded me of sound walks i mean um maybe we should mention that as well have you is that kind of what you were doing was guide, guiding a sound walk for the city yeah, essentially, um, we the the ones that I did specifically for this project, we actually um, had a bus, and so mm -hmm. we had kind of a gathering at the very beginning. I gave a little intro. We had some snacks and stuff for people, like as they were coming in, uh, and then we all got onto a bus, and then we drove to the location, and then did like a sound walk at that location, right. essentially. Right. Um, and so the the for this one, um, the workbook that I made was a way to. Um, give people a place to like write down things that they were observing. They could develop listening maps of the different locations. Um, it asked them some questions that they could consider while we were at the place. Mm -hmm. And then it also was just a way for me to get different types of resources into the hands of anyone who's interested in learning more. So I had links to websites and YouTube videos and, and things like that for folks who wanted to know more. And this is something that is really important to me when I do workshops. Um, because like I you know, sort of mentioned, I started out as a graphic designer and I, that's not something I can turn off. And I love being able to integrate visual communication and text-based communication and image communication and motion and interactivity into this type of work so that I can engage people in a lot of different ways because we know, you know, we know everybody learns differently. And so 
if I can lead a sound walk and have a worksheet or a workbook and have something that someone can take with them and give them a sticker. There's just a lot of different ways that people may remember or, or connect with uh, the, the value and, and the importance of this. So, so yeah, so for that one, we took a bus and this idea of a bus tour is something that I've done a couple of different times. Um, I, uh, I, I created a, a fictional uh, tourism company called the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Bureau of Infrastructure Tourism. Hmm. And so the Bureau of Infrastructure Tourism has done a couple of different bus tours. I've got like magnets that I put on the doors of the bus mm-hmm. uh, or the van or whatever vehicle the organizers are able to get for us. And then we go to different locations and then we basically do like a small sound walk at these different locations. And then we use the in-between time to facilitate discussion about what we observed and also then kind of like where where we're heading and what people are thinking about as we're going to these different types of places and I'm asking them to engage with their their hearing as as a um as like a method for experiencing that space mm-hmm. and let's uh, point our direction to the future what do you have that you're excited about coming up or maybe something ongoing right now whether it's work or um a project or research or collaboration what are you excited about right now so I have, there's a couple of different things that I'm really excited about. One at a kind of a high level uh, is that I've been working more in trying to figure out how to get some of this stuff into live performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the, <clears throat> one of my, I mean, everybody's got their list of like, you know, sort of pandemic disappointments, but one of mine was um, I was supposed to go out to Los Angeles for um, a, a sound art com- a sound art festival called San Pedro. And I was, I was to do a live performance that utilized wind and wave data from the Los Angeles Harbor right near where the, like right in the back of where the festival was wow. at. Mm-hmm. I still was able to do it uh, as like a short online video. Um, but this idea of working this stuff into live performance is something that I've been working on for the past few months that I'm really quite excited about um, continuing to work on, but also like as the world starts to unpause finding different ways of being able to engage that as a format. Um, and I've got a couple of different collaborations that I'm working on at, at Iowa State. Uh, I'm part of a group that's called uh, University Water Scholars. And it's a, it's a group of researchers uh, and artists that was assembled by uh, a group at the Iowa Water Center. Um, and so we started meeting um, in this past academic year and we're starting to form like collaborations and teams out of that. And so being able to work with, um, to be able to work with scientists who are interested in this kind of stuff and find new and different ways to engage audiences with this messaging, I think is really, it's really valuable. And it's the, those are the collaborations I think I'm the most excited for. So continuing to collaborate um, in new ways with the scientists out at the Iowa Lakeside Lab, continuing to work with the scientists here at the, at Iowa State University where I'm at. Um, you know, this idea of taking the work that, that I think is valuable, that's like experientially based and really like merging it with this other work that is incredibly valuable, looking at things more from the, the, the hard sciences. I, I just think there's so much interesting space there as we are seeing in our, you know, sort of culturally this need for an, a better engagement with the public when it comes to scientific knowledge. Um, I think there's a lot of room and a lot of opportunity that we that we need to be investigating so that people 
uh, I'm by people, I just mean the general public are engaging with science in a more meaningful way um, as opposed to just like picking and choosing what feels good. Right. Right. And, and a really good way to do that that can be uh, illuminating and relevant, I guess, is presenting science in an artistic way or, you know, mm-hmm. as kind of an art form can be easier to process for some people. Yeah, yeah, I think it just it has an opportunity to provide a different a- uh, different access point. Mm-hmm. So it could be something that's more experiential, or it could even just come down to art science communication, um, which is a field that a lot of people are are interested and invested in, and I, and I think it's really valuable to try to figure out how to get more of the work to the public in a in a meaningful way, and not in a not in a luxury way, um, but in a way that can really sort of inspire change. Right. Yeah, I guess you've kind of summed it up a little bit, but what would you say your goal is of of your work? Yeah, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> it's it's fun. This is actually something that I've been working on for a while is to see if I can figure out better ways to identify what the goal is, um, you know, because awareness is not enough. And, and we know that, like, we can't make people aware of things and have it just be better. Like, we have to be able to give people action items we have to be able to provide toolkits for these kind of things and so my goal is to really try to move the work further beyond awareness and presentation and take it more into the realm of actionable items and get people to have ways at a lot of different levels um, to have a lot of different levels in which at which they can engage with nature sound uh as like a positive resource that is worth preserving. Um, and so whether that's like listening better, whether that's, you know, trying to uh, dissuade um, people from an idea that outdoors you can make as much noise as you want, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do that. But I would say like, in terms of my goal, having, um, having a different perspective and placing more value, not only on like our soundscape, but also just on our hearing in general. Because a lot of that does apply to any type of environment that we build, whether it's nature, whether it's rural, urban, suburban, being cognizant of our soundscape and the impact that it has on us as like designers, as builders of buildings, as creators of space, we don't always do the best job at that. And so I, I just, I think there's, there's so many things to consider. Um, and there's so many things we can do if we're focusing on the soundscape, there's so many other things that we would have to really do and preserve along the way in order to maintain uh, a really sort of rich sound environment. Right. Yeah, I know my own recordings in the class I took with you were were really revealing as far as kind of the constant industrial hum that's going on. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure I would have known that, but actually participating and and, um, doing doing that action of recording and and listening and analyzing... um, really was was quite revealing and and also inspiring to me you know because I've been wanting to um, use my own music art form in a purposeful way and environmental awareness and and music as as you've discussed it's um it can be very powerful and just a different way to present Um, yes yeah 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 because culturally we've already said music is important Mm mm-hmm you know, I mean, whether we put enough resources and funding behind it or not, we as a culture, like have music around us all the time. Right. In stores and cars, 
in waiting areas, like we we have decided that we want music around us all the time. And so that to to your point, like I, I think you're right that that seems like a really valuable avenue mm -hmm. in order for some of this work to exist. Yeah. You know, what is the artist in residence like up at Lakeside Lab? Is that mostly science based or do you have musicians and composers doing work like you've mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way that I run the residency and the way that it was set up originally. So I'm the second director. Um, it was started by a, another woman named Lisa Gordillo, uh, and she um, ended up turning it over to me to take over um, after I had been the artist in residence there, which I thought was really amazing. Um, and we've kept it this way where the residency is open to artists working in any format. Um, the, the key thing that we are interested in when we review the applications is that artists are working in a way where their work sits at the intersection of art, science, and nature. And it's kind of the importance of those three that really drive who is going to be kind of the most successful with their time at the lab. Right. Um, you know, like I've had a number of applicants, for example, who work at the intersection of art and science, but it's in a much more like technological way. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I've also had scientists who are very artistic and, and that has also provided a, a great deal of success. And so we have a website, uh, it's Iowa Lakeside Lab, AIR.org. Um, and if you go on there, you can see the weekly lab reports of past artists. And we've had, we've had everything from painters and printmakers to technologists and programmers. Uh, we've had composers, we've had musicians, we've had performance artists, we've had installation artists, um, we've had multimedia, like mixed media artists. The, 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 the space in the residency really is set up um, so that there is no, there's no definitive requirement um, for the type of media that, that you work in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we've done that infrastructurally too. So um, when you're accepted as an artist in residence, you, you, uh, with your residency are granted, uh, housing. So you have a private room with a private bathroom, um, for the whole time, for the number of weeks that you're there, it's two, three or four weeks right now. Mm -hmm. Um, you get three meals a day for that time period. And then you also have studio space and our studio is a very large open space in, um, one of the original stone laboratories mm -hmm. so if you if you google like iowa lakeside lab and you look up the stone labs you'll see these amazing buildings um, that were built uh in the 40s i believe mm -hmm. um and so all we have is we have open space we have power we have uh water and uh windows that you can open but the reason <laughs> why we don't have any other interest like we don't have a shop we don't have labs we don't have a press we don't we don't have anything that would like dictate an artistic medium. So one of the other last requirements is that you have to bring with you the stuff that you're going to use to make your work. Right. Um, right. And, and so, yeah. So by not having any sort of built-in infrastructure that allows us to really foster any type of work, whether you are uh, an architect, an artist, a painter, a photographer, like, you know, um, curator, we, you know, we had a scent artist up there a few mm. years ago, mm -hmm. which was really interesting. So yeah, all over the board. Um, I'm sure that would just be fun to see what comes out of that every year. It'd be really interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's super interesting. Yeah. And like, that's one of the things that I really love about my position here in Iowa is that like, I get to do that. I get to like be the director of that program. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I love it every year. I love looking through the applications and I end up getting to meet most of the, uh, most of the artists mm -hmm. who go up there, which is yeah. really, really cool. Yeah. 
Well, awesome. Thank you, Alex. Uh, is there anything else yeah. you want to mention that we, we passed by? Uh, no. Uh, well, no, the only other thing I would say is like, um, you know, I kind of said it while we were talking, but you know, my, my website is listeninginstruments.com. Uh, I'm listening instruments on Instagram. I share a lot of my work there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this, the class that you mentioned, um, I teach that class. Uh, I've been teaching that class every summer for the last four summers. Uh, it is normally a field study course. Um, this past summer because of, uh, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic, it was done as an online course and I learned a lot from that. And so the plan moving forward is to have it as both a field study and an online course. Once the world goes back to whatever it's going to be, where we can be out in public again, safely. Um, so yeah, if anybody's interested in this topic, I just would encourage them to like reach out to me or keep it on your radar. Cause it's always about that time of year. It's, it's towards the beginning of summer it's usually one to two weeks after the universities let out uh, is when the classes start at lakeside so whether it's a class that someone would want to come and do in the field or take virtually um we're going to be we're going to be running it as a hybrid course from now on so that people can engage with it uh, either one of those avenues mm-hmm. yeah i think that's great i think that's excellent hey this was really fun Thanks it you. was for yeah talking, no i think this is really great to uh, bring light to this topic i mean it's totally related to uh, the sound world, uh, you know, sound therapy world and health and wellness of, of our soundscape. So thanks so much for, for doing this with me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you know, would it, I don't know if this would be interesting at all, but mm-hmm. if it would be interesting, I could, um, like I could set up a, I could set up a download link if your, if your yeah. listeners wanted to like have access to like one of my like nature sound files or something. That'd be great. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. If that's easy yeah. enough. Sure. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll set that up and I'll send you a link with like a, yeah, I'll send you like a download link for your listeners. Great. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Right. Sounds good. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Sounds Heal Podcast, sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. You can keep up to date with what's coming up next at soundshealstudio.com. Check things out on Facebook at Sounds Heal Studio. And you can listen to all previous podcasts as well as music meditations on the YouTube channel at Sounds Heal Studio. Be well and stay tuned.